And funnily enough, though, I like I never would have started the podcast if I hadn't have moved to a regional area where there were no jobs. You know, if I if I had still lived in in Melbourne or Sydney, um, I would have got myself a job with a security company. That's pretty much how it would have gone. So oddly enough, you know, living in a place with no security economy uh, meant that I kind of had to do something a bit weird to try to pay the rent. And uh, here we are. Hello and welcome to Password123, a cyber podcast produced by UNSW Canberra. In this podcast, we explore a range of topics from the world of cyber and speak to some of the most influential figures in the InfoSec community. My name is Tom Sear and I'm an industry fellow at UNSW Canberra Cyber at the Australian Defence Force Academy. In this episode of Password123, we go meta. We talk with Patrick Gray the host of leading information security podcast, Risky Business. InfoSec itself is driven by a new cycle of breaches, hacks, and epic fails. As InfoSec has expanded in the public awareness over the last decade, so has journalism covering the sector. InfoSec was an early adopter of podcasting. Security Now with Steve Gibson started in 2005, and Paul's Security Weekly with Paul Azadorian in 2006 both based in the United States. Very soon after, one of the most influential podcasts globally started off in Australia. In February 2007, Patrick Gray booted up Risky Biz. Soon he was joined by Kiwi Curmudgeon and Linux Beard Adam Metalstorm Brillow to digest the week's InfoSec news. The InfoSec community has itself taken a historical turn of late, with the Grug talking about hacker oral histories, and a member of the cult of the dead cow running for president, InfoSec has matured. I talked to Patrick about how his podcast reflects that journey. We also talk about why surfing the web and sharks have something in common. Now, Risky Biz, I mean, it's kind of the the DEF CON of cyber podcasts. Uh, It's like probably the most... Probably the probably the most influential and the longest running of any podcast to deal with cyber or cyber security. So, I guess to start at the beginning, like how how did that even start? So, first of all, it's not the longest running. I uh, think okay. the longest running would be I think Paul Security Weekly is about a year older, right? And Security Now with Steve Gibson. They were both around when I started, but. Really, I mean, I, I, I kind of started the podcast for um, personal reasons, I guess. I'd, I'd, I'd moved. Um, God, I, I'm going to have to kind of give you the long version, aren't I? Yeah, no, that's <laughs> fine. Long version's fine. <laughs> so, so really what happened is I, I'd, I'd been a, a, a reporter covering cybersecurity already for, for some time by the time I launched the podcast. Um, so I started off freelancing in about uh, 2001. And then moved full time into into journalism in O2. I wound up, uh, and that was just freelance. And then I wound up being offered a job with um, uh, ZDNet in Sydney. So I moved to Sydney, uh, spent a year there. Really enjoyed journalism. Didn't really enjoy living in Sydney that much. Uh, so I left, went back to freelancing, and then in two thousand and four, I moved to Byron Bay. And kept freelancing and I was, you know, I was enjoying that, but it had started to get a bit repetitive, right? Because you're writing the same type of story over and over for a mainstream audience. 
So it's like the breach story, the malware story, you know, the latest attack trend story, right? But but you're still writing it at a level that needs to be digestible by a mainstream audience. And in the case, even in the case of the technology publications that I was writing for, you know, you couldn't really go full, you couldn't really write that content for an audience of security professionals. So I wanted to do something that was uh, just for people who worked in InfoSec and, you know, everyone's like, oh, you should start a blog or you should start a newsletter or something like that. And I'd done a bit of community radio when I was a teenager. And when I lived in Sydney, uh, John Barron at the ABC was kind enough to let me contribute to Net News, uh, which was an ABC uh, uh, news radio news program radio. that yeah. yeah, that he used to run. So I had a bit of experience there at the ABC and, and I thought, well, I'll give this podcasting thing a crack. And, uh, you know, I had the idea... 10 seconds after I had the idea, I, I rang uh, someone I knew in marketing at a, at a large security firm and I said, look, do you think someone would be interested in sponsoring that? And she sponsored the first 12 episodes immediately because she she said, look, for us it would be, you know, and of course there was not much money attached to it at that point. Um, and for her, she said it would be a great way, uh, you know, to do these sponsor interviews would be a great way to do media training uh, for a lot of the people at her company. So that's kind of... That's kind of the origin story for, for Risky Biz. And, you know, it, it, it was only ever intended for me to be able to make a tiny bit of money out of it so I could cut some of the least, uh, some of the less interesting freelance work I was doing, like writing features on storage, you know, and stuff like that. So that's what it was supposed to be. But it kind of took off and it became, it became more or less my full-time job in about six months. Wow. So, I mean, like today, like podcasting is like the macrame of the, the teens or whatever, but it was hard. It wasn't even that well known in, in 2007, right? Like it wouldn't be that familiar a sort of format at that time. So I'm surprised you're even like you rapidly got an audience within six months. That's quite extraordinary. An international audience as well, presumably. Um, yeah. So I mean, the audience that? was never, I mean, in the early days, the audience wasn't that big, but it was, it was kind of um, an influential one, if that makes sense. Like right. a lot of the companies that were sponsoring it, I mean, they were more like um, benefactors than, sponsors you know right. <laughs> like that was kind of the that was kind of the model but you know you're right there weren't really that many podcasts around back then and it was pre i mean you know risky business started before the iphone was released right you know there was no android it wasn't it wasn't uh you know to 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 listen to it on the go you would have to download it via itunes or equivalent and sync it to your portable media player um but a lot of people just listened on the um on the web. And I think, look, you know, the, the big secret to, it's not really so much a secret, but the formula for uh, letting people know that you have a podcast is to interview people who uh, have their own followings, right? You know, nice. you interview them and naturally they're going to promote the content if it's good. And that's kind of, that's kind of the formula. Um, but I mean, that's, you know, that's the cynical way of looking at it. Um, you know, in my case, I like to think that I was just, I wasn't interviewing these people because I thought they'd promote my podcast. I was interviewing them because uh, I thought they were interesting and that's a good way to, um, that's a good thing to, to have in your podcast, right? So um, that's kind of how it went, you know, just, just interviewing interesting people, word gets around and um, off it went from there. And I guess it's, it's, I was surprised to learn you're in Byron Bay and many people do when I mention where you are, um, certainly for an Australian audience, like, um, but then I guess like Fred Ward's famous history of um, uh, the California tech, like in a way that uh, sort of that movement is integrated with, you know, the whole earth catalog and everything else, sort of that type of lifestyle. It's just that in Australia, you don't associate it 
with Byron Bay for some reason. What is that sort of a weird experience to be like talking on uh, about tech issue and then step out into the beach of Byron or? It, it is, it is. Um, and it's, I mean, Byron's changed a lot. I've recently just moved actually away from Byron because it's just been crushed, you know, like right. it's full of bloody Hollywood movie stars and stuff <laughs> now and it's really weird. Whereas, you know, it used to be quite a quiet place to live. And yep. I, I moved there in 04 and, you know, my old joke about this is I moved there for a year in 2004 and so far it's going pretty well. Like I don't think I, I intended to stay, but I, I just could never find a reason to leave. And funnily enough, if I, well, and look, just for those listening who, who might not know about Byron, it's like, you know, it's a, it's a small and very beautiful town on the east coast of Australia. Uh, good surf, and now it's you know now it's full of the beautiful people. But it kind of had history as a bit of a hippie mecca, you know, hippie uh, surfer town basically. Um, so yeah, it is. It, it was always a bit weird for me to coexist between my infosec life and my small town life, and to a degree, it it yeah, it still is. It's still something that gets me. Um, when you finish work and then you're basically, you know, in an environment where absolutely nobody knows or cares at all about InfoSec. I think it's actually healthy. Uh, <laughs> I think it's a good thing. And funnily enough, though, I, like, I never would have started the podcast if I hadn't have moved to a regional area where there were right. no jobs. You know, if I, if I had still lived in, in Melbourne or Sydney, um, I would have got myself a job with a security company. That's pretty much how it would have gone. So oddly enough, you know, living in a place with no security economy yep. uh, meant that I kind of had to do something a bit weird to try to pay the rent. And uh, here we are. And, and pretty soon you sort of reached out across the ditch into to New Zealand and developed a, a relationship with an offsider who um, is now, like I was listening to some, there's a, there's a couple of um, episodes which are, that the Wayback Machine has captured very early, and um, uh, your offsider is on is heard on that, and you remark, "Oh, it seems to be going pretty well." Um, so it's obviously continued to go well. So how did that? Obviously, two blokes talking on a podcast is kind of a, a thing, uh, but how did you blokes start to develop that rapport? I guess that audio rapport online. I guess he's always in New Zealand, so. Yeah, it's 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 interesting, right? Because Adam isn't actually the original co-host right. of Risky Business. Um, the original co-host was a guy named uh, Mania Katadia, who was essentially my replacement at ZDNet in Sydney. Right. So he's a security journalist uh, based in London. And then when I left, I think sometime afterwards, they're like, well, we should probably hire someone to cover security. So he wound up um, moving to Australia and uh, and taking that job. And Adam was someone who I'd interviewed um, for a few written stories here and there. And he wound up filling in uh, for Manir a couple of times and just sort of filling in more and more. And then Manir got less interested in it because he was doing other things. He wound up going into video production and stuff and security wasn't really his thing anymore. And just gradually Adam became uh, the guy. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny for me when I um, have occasion to listen to an old episode um, there used to be this real sort of tension between Adam and I, this sort of, um, we used to argue a lot more. Right. And I think as time has, has sort of gone on, we've, we, we've sort of moved to the center of each other's positions and we, we tend to agree a lot more. But, but I, I guess we've just always really enjoyed discussing this stuff. Like I, I really look forward every week to, to speaking to him about the news, the security news, because right. it's, it's always fun. And so, like, moving to that centrist position, is that because the, the industry's changed or 
is it something like what did you typically argue about and how did you emerge sort of or you just sort of used to each other like an old rock and roll band or something now but Ah, oh, geez, I don't know. I think it's, look, I mean, in our case, we've been doing this, uh, you know, Risky Business has been going 13 years, probably 10 years or so longer with him, right? And um, I think we've influenced each other, right? Uh, to be honest. And, you know, his position was always, you know, he, he's a Unix beardy hack the planet guy, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, pen tester. And, and, you know, and I was a little bit like more the, more the, 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 the straight bat to his Right. You know, uh, he's more out there stuff. And I guess just gradually over the years, we've sort of, um, yeah, we've sort of converged <laughs> a bit. But um, yeah, it's, it's, I do think we've had an influence on each other. And I think that's the thing. It's certainly the thing that I get out of it is um, um, I, I certainly do allow myself to be influenced by his perspective because he's very, very smart um, and certainly much more knowledgeable on a great deal of this stuff than I am. Um, and, you know, I believe that he, he allows me to influence him on some things as well. And it's, it's a really lovely working relationship, actually. And I guess looking back now, like how do you – what do you think – I mean, what are the themes you've noticed? I mean, you talked earlier at the start about, you know, the traditional pattern of – of journalism and uh, cyber journalism, like the breach, the leak, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that pattern's probably still there. Um, but how would you reflect on sort of, if we were to do some data analysis of your, your, um, and there probably will be a PhD on that in the future, I need to warn you, um, on your oeuvre, like, and how you've set up all the subjects and topics and everything, what would you identify as thematically consistent, different? How would you define change, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, that's a big question, right? Um, I think things have stayed, you know, the, the, the fundamentals have stayed more the same right. than they have differed, right? Um, the fundamentals are absolutely still the same fundamentals we were dealing with when we started the show. I think that in some ways things have got a lot better because right. it is, you know, we at least have a fighting chance now in terms of, if you're trying to be, build a Greenfields network or a, a Greenfields production environment, you at least have a hope in hell of, of doing a reasonable job with it. Um, the problem is, though, these days, complexity, right? right? That's what's changed. So we've built better tools that would have been great 10 years ago, but now we've made everything so complex that I'm not sure we're quite on top of things because of that. I don't know, I don't know if I'm making sense there. Um, so what, what's the nature of the complexity? Can you unpack that? Well, I mean, I don't know if you if you saw this going around on Twitter over the last week, but there was a graph people are, are sharing. I don't even know. It could be it could be completely made up, but it looks legit, and it's right. from um, Monzo, and it's a graph depicting the relationships between the fifteen hundred microservices that they operate, and right. which microservices can talk to which other microservices, and it is a mess. Right. <laughs> you know, it's this incredibly complicated graph. And, you know, each node on that graph represents a point at which, you know, information is going to be passing through that, through that node, right, right? In, in, in very complex ways. And underpinning that is going to be all of these orchestrated environments, you've got containers, you've got cloud stuff, you know, it's just everything is very complicated now. And I think with that, with those complex environments come a lot of opportunities for, um, you know, sneaky, sneaky behavior. Let's just put it that way. So I think that's, that's kind of a, a, 
a new one to a degree is just the scale of complexity and not really being able to, you know, you can't just draw a Visio diagram of a modern, um, of a modern production environment and say, right. there it is, you know, you can't do that. Um, so that's new, like basically building production environments that are so, and networks that are so complicated that you can't even really um, succinctly describe them. I think that's a relatively new thing. Right. Because like the, the, the old cliche that if you don't know your network, then that's where your vulnerability is, your lack of knowledge of it. Um, but no one knows them anymore. That's kind of right. what I'm getting at. That's yep. the new normal. Exactly. Um, so I think I think that's something that's changed. Um, but I think the you know the fundamentals around um, things like uh, you know authentication uh, around operating system and browser security. I mean, it's amazing how browser security, like as much as browsers have got better, it's not like we've eradicated um, serious browser vulnerabilities right. uh, in you know decades of doing this stuff. So yeah, some things have changed. Some things have definitely stayed the same. I guess like we'll never probably never out design that legacy now. It's like email, um, browsers, they sort of I mean, like this I guess this week is sort of the fiftieth anniversary of that famous message being sent across ARPANET in nineteen sixty nine. And um sort of we're still living with the rest of it's kind of an accident in a way. So everything's just happened accidentally or ad hoc. But there's this mega structure of uh, a furball of accident and complexity now, which is based on these old structures, which are like, or forms, which we're not ever going to get rid of because we're so wedded to them now as humans. Um, I guess that's a bit, bit of a philosophical rant, but um, <laughs> like. <laughs> that's but, a good one though. Yeah. <laughs> so like we're stuck with some forms as much as we build complexity increasingly. We're also stuck with these old timey tools and um, like the, the browser, like, it, it, I mean, that's, I guess, fundamental the way that, the internet functions or the web functions, but I don't know, like I, can, can we out design, like how are we going to respond to complexity with more complexity? Is that how we'll have to deal with it? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the question, right? And I, I had a really interesting chat with Haroon Mir uh, recently. That's going into the, the sponsored bit of the podcast tomorrow. Um, you know, about this idea that we are tending to see a bit of a healthy industry shift towards solving what I like to call, and I th I'm pretty sure I stole this term from Rich Mogul, the um, sort of, uh, you know, veteran analyst who's now uh, uh, running a startup. Um, but he, he splits a lot of these security solutions into white collar and blue collar. Right. Um, and, you know, we are seeing a bit of a shift towards some of these blue collar tools that actually um, look after some of the fundamentals. And right. that seems pretty healthy. And I think we're increasingly getting a little bit tired of vendors proposing these extremely exotic solutions to the whole thing. And we're going to start tackling things like, um, you know, authenticating users in a sensible way and <laughs> right. having decent visibility into fundamental um, uh, important data, uh, important uh, uh, operations that are being performed on your infrastructure and, you know, things like that. I think we're, we're kind of going back to the fundamentals. And I think to a degree this, this uh, trend towards very complex environments is kind of driving that. Um, you can't expect a piece of machine learning based network gear to really understand uh, a contemporary complex environment and all of the um, relationships between each node in that <laughs> right. in that environment, right? That's just not going to happen. So I think there's a, a growing recognition that the only way we're going to fix this is with the fundamentals. Right. So because uh, like people, t there was a at Congress, people were talking about AI last week as well in the US Congress. And it's like, is that going to be, as you, you're sort of implying that probably won't be a solution to what is basically 
um, like if you're in the military, it's a, like a, a complex network problem versus the grunts on the ground um, who are kicking down doors. Just make sure they've got the right gun that actually fires for the right situation as opposed to, you know, this massive complex of drones and information and, and command and control at this executive level. It's much more about making sure the grunts don't get killed when they kick down a door than it is uh, trying to develop some decisionatron AI that's going to manage the whole complexity in one sort of one lot. Yeah, look, I mean, I think um, I think machine learning, you know, it, it absolutely has its place. And I'm kind of with the consensus view, which is that it's it's got some good but limited uses. I mean, right. I have spent time in front of a snort console, right? right. And just looking at the same crap every day yeah. <laughs> that you could easily tune out with right. a bit of machine learning because it can apply, you know, it's good at applying basic context, right? So right. I think, you know, there's absolutely a place for, for machine learning, but I, I, I get a little bit skeptical of the companies that are proposing it as like, just put this machine learning enabled box on your network and all of your problems disappear. That's right. where I get a bit like, hmm, Mm, mm, not so sure, right? right? So that's that's kind of where I'm at with it. And so have you, I mean, in terms of prediction, I'd probably ask you what the future is. Like, have you got, a, is there a temporal scale which you, after like doing this for 13 years, you can say, oh, I can predict out to this scale. Like it's like 18 months or five years or two days on what oh. you think will happen. Like do you? I don't know. I mean, I just think, I don't think that, anything that's really happened in terms of the way technology has developed has been all that tremendously unpredictable. I mean, right. the the way that we went from, I mean, you remember when virtualization first uh, came around and that was, you know, what, in, in a big way, it was like, what, 12, 13, 14 years ago, right? right? When people were like, oh my God, we can virtualize these sort of servers that don't really have much going on, on uh, onto the same hardware, right? right? So we can take these four boxes and we can run them on one box. That's fantastic. We can run some of our legacy crap that's no longer supported by modern hardware on a hypervisor. And that was this, you know, this revolution. Uh, VMware made a bun bundle of money. And then AWS came and ate their lunch, right? <laughs> because yeah. it turns out that the value wasn't on uh, consolidating different servers onto, um, uh, you know, onto the same hardware and, and making those um, server images transportable. It was just in this new way of doing things, which was completely outside of your premise. And, you know, all of the orchestration that went with that and, and the new ways of doing things. So, so I think, you know, to a degree, people were using VMware to do the old stuff in a more sensible way. Uh, but then the cloud revolution, the, 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 once it picked up steam, how rapid it was kind of surprised me a little bit. And then oh. you've got like, okay, what does that unlock? How does that then uh, enable new ways of doing things? And that's been amazing as well. Uh, it's also been a little bit like, you know, it's also put us in this, in this situation where everything is so, is so complicated. But I think in retrospect, it all looks pretty, pretty normal, right? Like some of it at the time, you might think, wow, you know, this trend is really, is really strong. And I didn't quite see that coming right. uh, like this. But then you look at it in, in retrospect and it makes perfect sense. So I'm not sure what the next big thing is. Um, I, I, I'm not sure, but I'm sure it'll be interesting. <laughs> How's that for the ultimate cop out to the question? <laughs> and what about the, what about the, the coverage of it? So like, 
um, over that year, I lost, uh, it's become a mainstream topic for, for media. Like I was listening to this uh, one you did in 2009 last night and you, you'd broken a, a story. You'd noticed that something, it was in a blog, you'd picked it up, no one else had really seen it and then you'd transferred it across to a mainstream media audience and then actually ran there and then you had trouble actually getting a response back from the the, 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 um, the industry, the company that was involved um, once it had run. But now we're in this world where cyber news is kind of a mainstream form of popular uh, journalism almost. Or And there's like a, a second book every day. There's sort of, sort of an historical consciousness as well as a, as a book comes out every day about the history of it and major journalists sort of work on it. Um, is that, that a trend will just continue as well, I suppose, will it? Or do you think there'll be a period? Well, I think, I think you know, it's, it's – I think InfoSec – these days it touches everything, doesn't right. it, right? In the same way that technology, everywhere where technology goes, security follows. So I think it's, it's. I still, I got to confess, I still find it a little bit jarring when InfoSec stuff, you know, pops up on the radio news when I'm listening to the radio in the car or right. something. I still find that weird right. uh, for some reason because I'm just not used to to that. It's like when I used to tell people what I did for a living 12 years ago, they they would just, their eyes would glaze over, right? Like it was interesting to no one. And now everyone's like, wow, cool, you know, security. It's, it, but that's the thing. It has changed because I think people have realized the degree to which it touches everything. It touches on personal privacy. It touches on global power. Uh, it touches on commerce. It touches on absolutely everything. So I think that's what's changed. And I think um, a lot of the journalism that we're seeing is, is pretty good these days. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, back back in the day, man, I'm, uh, you know, it was not good. Right. It was not good. The reporting was terrible. Right. Um, I, I think, anyway, that's my my belief. I mean, there were the exceptions, but the the rule was, um, if you read anything about InfoSec, it was um, virtually guaranteed to be missing the point, right? right. Um, but now you've got some some extraordinarily talented journalists who really seem to get uh, the the important bits. Um, and we see misfires, right? Don't get me wrong. Yep. Like we still, I mean, geez, the Bloomberg stuff, yep. that was interesting. <laughs> um, you know, we see, we see people getting stuff wrong, but I think by and large, the, the arc there is, uh, is positive. And again, I just think it's a reflection that, uh, technology is touching everything and therefore, you know, anywhere it goes, security goes with it. And I think, I think that's really what we've seen. I suppose social media has expanded. Like in one of those early ones you were talking about, um, uh, there was a breach at, at Twitter where one of the administrators had like a, a password called it was happiness or something and Twitter was breached and um, Twitter's quite young or just sort of becoming emergent and now is sort of at the centre of US and world world politics. So is there, if you, like obviously you're, you're part of that community actively as well and so as well as the podcast you have an influence in that space as well what do you think about infosec twitter or infosec social media oh geez <laughs> I, I will tell you look one thing i remember too about one story we reported on twitter from the early days was their search like search.twitter.com right. was actually hosted on a shared host with a bunch of porn sites <laughs> 
which I think was really funny. And they all had really funny names. They were like, you know, bigbuttladies.com <laughs> or whatever, you know, like it was just really weird that here we are, this, this you know, Twitter, which has become now this major platform where the US president uh, uh, <laughs> likes, to, likes to rant and, you know, search.twitter.com. I think it wound up getting blacklisted or something because <laughs> of the porn sites that were on it. I can't remember, but it was very, very funny. Um, Infosec Twitter, look, you got to realize that I, I, I think journalists tend to look at Twitter in a very different way to people who are participating in it earnestly, right? Because yep. right? for us, Twitter is fantastic. Yeah. Twitter is a, is a source of information and all of the crazy bullshit that goes along with it, um, I'm pretty happy to ignore, right. to be honest. Yep. Um, for me, I really do look at it as a source of breaking news and interesting perspectives. Um, obviously, you know, when there are people being uh, egregiously uh, idiotic on there, you know, you might sort of jump in and uh, participate a little bit. But I, I think, you know, I, I, tr- I try not to get too invested yep. in the in the Twitter stuff, I guess is my is my answer, yeah. too emotionally invested. And I think other people do, and that's, that's understandable. It's their community. They see it as a community. I think, you know, there's some weird parallels between uh, Twitter and IRC communities, for example. Right. You know, it's IRC where you can tune who you who you um, uh, who you whose messages you see, right? So I, I get why people care, but um, for me, the way I see Twitter is it's just it's an extraordinary way to gather information. It's also fantastic when you can um, just send someone a message. Right. You know, someone has written an interesting paper, or you know, you can just contact them directly. And I think um, again, as a journalist, Twitter is an incredible tool. Absolutely amazing and 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 game changing uh, for the type of work that I do. Let's put it that way. And uh, are you, uh, surely you're going to expand into any other formats, like there'll be a Netflix series with you or some other um, medium, um, or you're just happy sort of sticking it out um, in Byron, just uh, get, doing the podcast every week or so. And well, yeah, I mean it's 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 a good job, right? And I and I enjoy doing it. I get to speak to really interesting people about stuff that I am very interested in. So that's my job. And, you know, and and then people often write me emails telling me how much they enjoy that. And I I just don't think a job can really get much better. So I don't have any plans to, I I, I was thinking at one point of writing a a brief um, for like a documentary series. I, I was thinking about doing, uh, I think the working title was um, How the World Got Owned um, and just looking at some key themes and, and key events and it could be really interesting. But, you know, that's the thing. There's other people who've come along um, who are probably better placed to do that. My thing is news and analysis, right? right. That's what I do best. Then you've got guys like Jack Resider uh, with his Darknet Diaries podcast and he's a storyteller. Right. You know, he's going to be the guy who, who, who winds up on, um, uh, on, on a Netflix series. That's what I think. He's, he's um, a very talented uh, guy. So, yeah, I'm just planning on sticking it out. We should be launching something new um, next year. I can say, you know, 90% it's happening um, that we're launching a uh, text-based service as well. So you will see some written content appear on risky.biz. So that's something we're doing. Um, but, you know, in terms of and, – and there will be someone else doing that. I, I, I plan to hire someone to do that. Um, but from my point point of view, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy doing the podcast. Even though it's been forever, um, I still I – still, I still like it. Is that wrong? <laughs> no, that's fair. I think everyone else does as well. So uh, I think that's not a problem. Um, 
But uh, how how did the world get um, owned? Owned? You know, like do you think that's what's happened? Or no, I don't know. I mean, it's it's. You know, there's those competing views yeah. and they both have merit. There's the the world is on fire view, yeah. right? Uh, which is certainly a popular one. But then, you know, I mean, I can get in my car, go to the supermarket, buy my food, pay with my card. You know what I right. Like the world is still spinning, right. right? So while I think the state of security definitely needs some improvement, um, I, you know, it's just in lieu of something really bad happening, you know, we can't allow ourselves to really give in to that doomsday view just yet, I think. And I could, That's my feeling anyway. You've been chatting the last week a bit about infrastructure and um, uh, do you think, I mean, is there a risk of it? Is Cyberstorm uh, sort of a major concern? Certainly a concern for governments. Um, I mean, it's been widely discussed even at Senate Estimates in down here in Canberra in the last 10 days or so. Um, what's, how might we think about that. I know like the, the recent podcasts you have done on that have been fairly balanced and, um, you know, sort of as to how to respond to it. Um, but do you think some sort of cyber apocalypse or national grade, um, sort of incident is likely or could it? Well, see, I think, I think, uh, I think that one thing we've got to keep in mind when we discuss the ICS threat is your biggest risk is always going to come from your pariah states and uh, terrorist groups. Right. Basically, organisations or countries that do not fear consequences, right? Because right. I can't imagine any country that fears consequences launching a destructive ICS attack, okay? Because that is the equivalent of them putting someone on an aeroplane, sending them in, in, into a country, uh, getting them to build a bomb and blow people right. up. It's the same thing. It's going to elicit the same type of uh, military and diplomatic response. So I, I don't expect a non-pariah state to engage in an actual harmful attack. I do think things have escalated lately and, and that's definitely a worry and we need to do a better job with ICS security and locking down those environments to limit what attackers are able to do if they access those environments but I don't necessarily think we will see... I mean, just imagine this. Imagine North Korea, which is a pariah state, doesn't tend to fear consequences, yep. right? Yep. Imagine if they do launch some sort of very destructive ICS attack. That That's going to tip the... Cal I mean, it might even tip the calculus to war, depending on which country they hit and what they yep. do, you know? And that's the unthinkable war. Right. But that's what I mean. So I think that the consequence of perpetrating an ICS attack is so high that it, it, it's enough to discourage people from actually doing it. And the, the, the podcast that you referenced, um, yeah, there was the interview with, with uh, Eric Rosenbach, who's uh, co-director of the Belfer Centre and now uh, and, and former, um, uh, former uh, chief of staff of the Pentagon. He's also a former CISO. He's a very uh, interesting guy. And, you know, he, he seems to think, and I, I tend to agree, that ransomware is probably a bigger threat to us right now than, you know, ICS environments being being owned. Because of the capacity, it's so simple to, to lock it down. And the barrier to entry is so low. You know, you've got criminal groups out there um, who only have half a clue who are, who are taking down hospitals, you know, right. and that's a problem. That's a real problem. 
Uh, and that's something that's happening now, and it has nothing to do with industrial control systems. So, like, weirdly, like, weirdly, like, I read a paper from 1997, I think, where somebody had said, this is possible, you know, like, people could, um, you know, they could encrypt your entire system, and, and that's a real security risk. Like, a paper from 1997, so, like, a lot of the things that we th- are a risk 20 years later, we, we know about long before, and probably the risk we know about now will continue to be risks into the future, Um Presumably. Well, I mean, you know, the, one of the big things that changed there is there's now a means of extracting payment from people oh, that is relatively safe for yep. criminals, you know? I mean, that's that's the thing. You look at a lot of the crime uh, occurring, a lot of online crime is sort of underpinned by digital currencies. Right. And that's not that doesn't mean that I'm sitting here advocating that we should ban digital currencies or whatever. But I tell you what, if you ban digital currencies and exchanges and made buying digital uh, uh, currencies a crime, people would have to stop paying ransoms. You know, not that I'm advocating that. I'm just, <laughs> you know, I'm just saying um, it's, you know, this is where we are with it. It's a, it's a, it's an odd situation. It's certainly a challenge, like certainly in Australia for the, the AFP or the Australian Federal Police, how it relates to crime and how you even um, begin to explore capturing um, that currency if something was to, if someone was even caught um, you know, you have to look for all the elements in a certain room and you have to be understand what you're doing before someone even transfers it and so on and so forth. So it's such a mobile form of um, way to run a criminal enterprise that, yeah, it's – or a national enterprise in some cases. Um, it's just convenient. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's why you got the FBI going after tumblers, right? right. Which makes a lot of sense because tumblers make Bitcoin harder to track. Right. And without tumblers, it's actually not too hard to track. So I think it's an intelligent decision there to actually start targeting tumblers and say, no, you know, you can use your Bitcoin, but just don't don't try to hide it. Because, um, you know, if you're operating a service designed to, to obscure the origin and destination of a Bitcoin, um, then we're going to treat you like you're a money launderer, which you kind of are. So right. that's, that's been an interesting thing to watch. Money laundering is kind of tricky, though, with, is some, uh, with some of the cryptocurrencies because, because of the price fluctuation – it's not something, it's dangerous to having it for very long. It's like you want to launder it quickly through it because it, it could fluctuate. You could actually lose your money by putting it into a, a cryptocurrency because tomorrow or it could crash. So there's a lot of paranoia, I think, about moving that money through some of those networks, whereas perhaps the cyber criminals just live in that network consistently. Um, I don't know much about the ecology of them, but may just in, exist in an environment and quite happy to just to bear the cost of the ups and downs that uh, that we see with well just sit on your sit on your bitcoin till the heat drops off man it would be probably <laughs> not advice. such a crazy idea you know <laughs> cash out in 10 years right and when everybody's forgotten that you ransomware some hospitals in new zealand right. or whatever you know um so and what like speaking of 10 years what would you have said to the you know to the the patrick of 2007 now that you're we're in uh, 2019. What would you say to that, uh, to the younger self, the younger, the younger pod self? Oh, geez, that's a, that's a hard one. What would I have said? See, I don't know though. Cause like, I'm not, I've never been someone who's been out there making the decisions, right. you know, um, I'm an observer right. and that's, that's kind of my job. So it's not like I can, I can go back and give myself advice, um, you know, you should have done this, you should have done that. I don't know. It's hard. I mean, I, look, I would have told myself maybe, hey, keep doing the podcast because that's going to work out, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But I kept doing it anyway, so things worked out. No, I mean, I, you know, it's just 
as I say, like I, I, I'm not really a participant in this. Right. You know, I'm, 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 I'm an observer. And um, so it's difficult for me to sort of put myself in that frame of mind. Like what would I have told myself to do differently? You know, like um, I can't, I can't really think in that yep. way, if that makes yep. sense. Is there any, I mean, has anything else come to mind where we're talking about, about the, is there anything else you wanted to add or that you come up with since chatting about it? Yeah. Look, one of the rules of podcasting, no one cares what you did on the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> they don't care. And they don't generally care what you think either. Right. That's yeah. Cause they're thinking that's why they've got it in their ears. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. I mean, I was a bit like listening to some of the early ones, like it's actually, pre- I mean, obviously you're a professional journalist, but the, the format and the consistency is quite um, like you had it set pretty early. I was a bit, you know, I thought, oh, I thought that when I go back and look at the early material, there'd be quite extreme differences in the way you did the program. But actually early on, you sort of had it set, seemed to seem to tend to work. Um, you, the structure was there. You were pretty disciplined the way you spoke to people. And um, yeah, I was, I found that sort of remarkable. I don't know why, but I thought, oh, yeah, I thought it'd be different. But um, well, I guess the, the the thing that's changed though is I do let myself express opinions now, and I never right. used to. Like if you go back and listen to those first few years, um, you know, I just generally didn't really allow myself an opinion, right? Because um, that's because I came from a background in you know in print journalism, and it's just not what you did. That's editorialising. That's bad. That's bad. Right. Uh, but when you shift into a more radio like format, I guess it sort of comes with the territory. So I kind of loosened up a bit. But no, the formats the formats unchanged. Uh, we used to have a feature interview in between the news and the sponsor interview. Um, but that I had to drop that because we've just got too much, there's too much news now, (laughs) you know, that's another thing that's changed. Right. Right. And okay. So that's one thing I'd like to say is, is the volume of news is extraordinary. Now in the early years, some weeks we would have barely anything to discuss. Right. Right. You'd have your weekly risky business podcast to be like, okay, here's two news items that are worth talking about onto the feature. Right? Right. And now I mean, I've got a full-time staff member and he does the news scraping. So every morning I get the email and, you know, I've got to start doing the cull. Right. You know, stripping out stories. You know, we can wind up with like four or five pages of links to news articles from good journalists covering security. And we have to filter that and just pull out the stuff that's most relevant. So that's one thing that's really changed is the information overload. And oddly enough, I think it's one of the reasons that risky business has become more popular in recent years is because people just cannot keep up on it on their own. Like they can't. Right. That's true, actually, because like some of the things, oh, some of the oh, bloody hell, like I can't keep up. I just got to stop looking at the flow and I'll just look at what you've talked about or something, you know, as a condensed <laughs> version of of to deal with a problem. Whereas previously it might've been, Oh, I need to understand everything that's going on at one time. Now it's just a, a filter almost for what it just seems like is a cycle almost every day for something now. Now it's just impossible to keep yeah, up no, with. It's, it's so, turned off the fire hose. And when I have a, when I have a holiday, like I had two weeks off recently and I came back and there were 16 pages of links to news articles <laughs> waiting for me to filter 16 pages, just of links of URLs. Wow. So what do you do when you go on a holiday? Like, do you, what, what does it feel like to be disconnected from all that? Oh man, I spend my time. I, I'm always on Twitter when I'm on holiday. Right. <laughs> you know, I'm always looking at it. I mean, less, obviously a lot less, but I still like right. to keep my eye on things because it's just become second nature. It becomes kind of who you are. A couple of times a year though, I do manage to go camping where I can't get cell service and that's <laughs> really good for me. Um, that's really good for me to be able to sit by a river. And But you know, it's funny, you know, Kim Zetter, the, the Wired journalist, right. 
uh, her profile pic on Twitter, and it, it has been the same picture for years. That's actually a photo I took at oh. one of those camping spots, um, which doesn't have cell service. Right. So that's me sitting on a folding chair at the edge of a river reading Countdown to Zero Day. <laughs> <laughs> so I took a photo of like the book cover and sent it to her when I got back into service, and she used that as a profile picture. But yeah, even that's the thing, right? No service. Oh, well, better read this book about stocks now. That's... So, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty sad, but this is the thing. I like it. So what goes through your mind when there's no service? Like what uh, drifts out of your consciousness about um, InfoSec when you're in that environment, when you're in a meditative uh, uh, nature? To be honest, when it's not right in front of me, I'm happy not thinking about it. Right. And that's another thing about that, you know, having that split life between living in a small coastal town and, right. and um, you know, spending your time talking to talking to people in InfoSec. It's, you, you know, you can actually context switch like that. And, and that's why I said earlier, I think it's good. I think it's good for me because if I spent all my time in InfoSec, I'd probably go mental. Oh, you would go insane, yeah. Yeah. Do you surf or do you... Um <laughs> I used to, yeah. and then sharks started attacking everyone oh, yeah. up here. And yeah. like um, one of the people who got injured quite badly, he's an old school friend of an ex-girlfriend of mine. Right. Another guy who got bitten on the leg and survived, um, he didn't really get too badly injured, but that's a guy I know. And right. like, you know, when it's happening to people you know, right. um, it tends to keep you out of the water a bit. And then Byron got really crowded and then we had a baby and I, I, I'm not really surfing anymore, <laughs> sadly, but I used to, right? That's why I moved to Byron. Oh, okay. And now I'm living, now I'm living in East Ballina and the shark activity here is just off the chain. <laughs> it's crazy, <laughs> right? So you just, you just, I mean, I'm, I think I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm going to do shark week for risky <laughs> business next year. Um, cause I think there's, cause there's a whole shark mitigation strategy here. And I think there are some really interesting parallels to InfoSec. Right. Cause you've got, you know, you've got your, um, smart drum lines and you right. can, um, hook and then tag these sharks. Right. And then, so when a tagged shark comes back, it alerts a beacon and you get a feed, you know, pop-up says, you know, tagged white shark detected at, at beach X. That's your threat right. intelligence. And I guess back in the day, you know, in Australia, really certainly. good for detecting uh, tagged sharks. <laughs> I guess because net, nets were the old way of doing it in Australia around beaches so from sort of 20th century all the way through um, when there was obviously more killing of sharks. Yeah. So beyond the perimeter, there was a lot more, less risk because actually the shark was cr almost critically endangered at, certainly some of the ones that you deal with up that area of the world are. So yeah, it, it is probably an analogous too. I mean, now- Oh man, you wait. Uh, I'm going to I'm gonna do a really epic um, <laughs> uh, Shark Week special for Risky Beers. It's, it's happening. So um, you're going to go back to all the historical, um, some of the historical shark attacks in Australia as well, I suppose, to, to be parallels with- with InfoSec. I don't know. I think I just want to look at the mitigation technologies and the parallels and I think it could be fun. But uh, but yeah, that's it's just an idea for next week. Someone someone suggested it to me and I'm like, yeah, I should do a shark week. It's a good idea, yeah. It could be sponsored by Y Shark and you know I can um, Hey, hey, hey. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good idea. <laughs> so <laughs> they should get on board with it. Um, well look, it's really great to chat. Um, thanks very much for your time. You must be insanely busy, so yeah, today's pretty wild, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I've got, I'm like in full editing suite mode, but yeah. Um, how long does it take you to edit it down? 
Depends what I'm. Depends who I'm. I've recorded. Like you right. know, the show gets done on on one day. Like the news, right? Uh, from the final list going out to the recording to the you know that's that's one day. But I'm editing a soapbox edition with Capsulate uh, today, and I'm editing my sponsor interview for tomorrow's weekly show. And just you know, there's always bits and pieces. It's not the world's craziest busy job, but right. it definitely has its moments for sure. I'll, I'll let you get back to it. And thank you very much once again. No problem. And uh, yeah, thanks a lot for your time. I really appreciate it. That's this week's episode of Password123. Don't forget to join me next fortnight for another episode. And for more information, just Google UNSW Canberra Cyber. I'm Tom Sear. Thanks for listening.